0: Previously on Newsbreak Lotus FM
1: A very good afternoon to you Welcome to the program this Sunday m- afternoon now <laughs> Good afternoon, welcome to the program I'm Tadej Hari Pashad and we're bringing you Newsbreak Talk today Some cutting edge of affairs And what a wonderful month it is um, June, well it's wonderful because it's time to celebrate young people It's youth month And um, you know, you uh, actually I feel like, you know and, and this needs to be the way it is now going forward even. South Africans need to, at this point, really understand that um, story about young people fighting for education and um, and their right to it, their access to it, to such an extent that I don't even think we need to mention and remind you of names like Hector Peterson. You should already know who that is. We do not need to. Um, I feel we need to come to a point in South Africa where we don't have to explain to you or introduce to you who Hector Peterson was. Such an icon of our society, we all should understand his struggle, understand his story, know that picture of him at, you know the, the price he paid, so that young people today can have access to education and have their right educationally enshrined. So obviously that is why we have something like um, Youth Month. This year though, um, a very special um, theme that the government has set aside for Youth Month, the year of Charlotte McDeke and growing youth employment for an inclusive and transformed society. Now that is by far Uh, one of the biggest challenges that affects the young people of today so we are going to be talking about that we've got a um a mix of of of, um points that we wanted to spend some time on and um we're gonna be starting with a few something cultural we can talk about the economics and i also want to touch on something that i found um, particularly interesting and that is the uh, Naomi Osaka story of course Naomi Osaka is such an icon of tennis and a young rising star of tennis and she decided that she did not want to partake in the um, post-match interviews at the French Open at Roland Garros in um you know, that's currently taking place. And she um, said that she's willing to be fined 15, 000, up to $15,000 um, for that. And ultimately, the decision was taken to drop her from the tournament. And the reason why she didn't want to do the post-match conference was because she said it is an has an impact on her mental health. And there's been a lot of support that have come through, an interesting point that came through from Novak Djokovic, world number one in tennis. And he said that because she's young, you know, she has a different perspective on it. And I just wanted And that made me think, you know, when it comes to mental health of young people, how seriously is it taken? If somebody says, wait a second, I'm having a bad day, I'm having a challenge. Um, and do you stop and listen to them? So I also want to explore that dynamic, if you've got any thoughts on that. But um, yes, so I managed to have a conversation with Pearl Pillay from Youth Lab. She's the CEO there. And um, I wanted to look at the, the place and the space, rather, that South African youth of Indian origin find themselves in. How relatable are spaces of conversation when there are things on the agenda, when there is a global narrative, whether it is a function, whether it is a local function, um, whether it is what is put out on media for young people of South African Indian origin? Is it content that they relate to? Is it a content that is telling their specific and unique stories Um the, the conversation you know popped up in my head was um, I had a conversation with a young person who said you know why is it when there are television commercials and they need to show an Indian person an Indian South African they must show them wearing a sari or they must show them wearing Mahindi on their hands is there no other way to represent a um, South African of Indian origin and that made me you know think. Are young people forming their own perceptions and perspectives of what the South African Indian origin youth is? And what are these perspectives? Is it represented and carried forward, you know, across all platforms to the point where young people are comfortable enough to come out and say, well, this is where way I can express myself. This is how I can be part of the conversation. Or is it just something that is, you know, shoved down their throat and, and, and they're um, forced to um, to abide by it, oblige to it. So I spoke to Pearl Pillay about this. Of course, she's the director of Youth Lab, which is a youth consultancy firm, and she had some cool opinions about it.
2: There's room in the conversation for multiple things to exist at the same time. So I understand the big push around preserving culture and around young people especially um, learning about their culture and practicing it and being proud of it, right? But on the other hand, um, our our cultures, our ethnicities, our race um, are not the only parts of our identity. And I think there has to be room in the conversation to allow for many things to exist. And so young people, especially um, modern young people, urban young people in the Indian community, live in a country that's really diverse to experience a wide range of things that exist outside of their cultures. And they have to be able to be given the space to express those things without it seem like they're betraying, um, you know, where they come from or their roots in any way, because again, multiple things can happen at the same time.
1: And it's 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 an entire global concept then, isn't it, of evolution because everybody is changing. So now um, more often you will see on a social media feed, you know, of a female, um, don't judge me on whether or not my rotis are round or, you know, boys are saying I don't listen to chutney music, for example. You know, how should South Africans understand that platforms that are made available to young people also need to adapt.
2: So I think maybe to go to your earlier point around the ways in which um men and women are judged culturally, right? And and to your point about the fact that we live that this is a global problem. Um, that people generally are closing in the ranks within their cultures, um and there seems to be a bigger push towards, you know, stage and do all of that. Um, And it forgets that we live in a diverse world and in a world that's changing and society that's changing and the way we think about ourselves as just as human beings that exist. Um, is constantly changing. Um, and it has to be space to allow for that, right? So, conversations like the Rotti conversation, for example, um, also point to bigger things, right? So, we think about things like the skin color conversation in the Indian community and what it says if you're lighter skin versus if you're darker skin. And what it, what we're saying is that we're not allowing people room to be anything outside of one particular thing. Um, And those things end up hurting different people in different ways. And so we have so many platforms right now. I mean, social media is expanding at a pace that I don't think anyone can really keep up with fully. But it allows us to interact with people who are so different from us, but also have so many similarities. And it helps us to learn about the idea that you can be as you know culturally aware and culturally strong as you want to, and still be modern and still listen to uh, you know hip hop, or still actually not even know how to make roti, um, or not uh, be a particular religion. Like there's so many avenues that young people can take to explore who they are and to express who they are. And the more I think the older generation in our communities push back on it, um, the more people want to reject those parts of themselves because it feels like, if I can only be this thing and I can't be anything else, then maybe I don't want to be this thing at all. Um, and so I think there's a really delicate balance that people have to find. Um, but it has to start from the idea that people should be allowed to be different um, and should be allowed to express themselves without feeling like they're betraying their culture or their community. <laughs>
1: And so this Youth Month, you know, a sort of call you would make to South African um, young people about, you know, claiming their space within the South African Conversation.
2: becomes really easy for us to isolate ourselves in our communities, right? And I think specifically in the Indian community, that's a thing that we globally um, are very good at doing. We we like our people, we like our food, we like our things, and we don't want to... um, move out of those sort of comfort zones but i think part of what it means in a country like ours that again is so diverse and is made up of so many different um, backgrounds and experiences it's very easy to get ignored and kind of get lost in the the lost in the busyness i think of of everyday life and forget that you're an equal part of this country and you deserve to be seen and be heard. Um, but that it is no one's responsibility to find you in your corners and pull you out and say, Hey, please be part of this, like, bigger project and this bigger community. And so there has to be a real initiative and a real effort, I think, from young Indian people to think about who they are in this country and what their roles as, as Indian people, as citizens, um, in this big, big, big community that we call South Africa um, and find ways to contribute and to actually be a part of the things that happen on the everyday. I think for a really long time, we've been very happy with sitting in our communities and pointing to the outside and saying, you know, look how things are getting, look what's happening um, and passing judgment and not taking the time to, number one, understand how different people in our country live and also then to get involved and say, so actually, we do have a contribution to make. Um, and we have great initiatives already, right? If you think about um, things like the Catholic Youth Center, we have a lot of facilities and resources and programs and people who are dedicated and committed to, um, to pushing that forward and saying, actually, this is, these are the ways that we take up space. And so I would encourage young people to find those spaces and find ways to get involved
1: call Paley from Youth Lab over there an interesting conversation and you know I think she approached, approaches it from two prongs and um you know it's a complicated matter and it is something that uh, needs to work both ways you know at one point um one needs to have a representation of your original identity, a representation of, you know, where you come from and your roots. On the other hand, please be advised then that it's also changing and it's also um, evolving into something else. So, you know, you kind of need a conducive space for both those. It's not a one size fits all. You can't be on just one end of the spectrum. You know, you could, um, you know, want to have both aspects of you represented within the South African context of youth. I wonder your thoughts on that. Um, and we are going to go to social media and, you know, I'd like young people, if you're listening right now, um, to, you know, let us know about that. I mean, how challenging is it for you to, um, you know, to straddle that? Do you feel comfortable? Like if there is something on TV, do you feel that is representing your thoughts, your ideas, where you want to be? Um, you know, if you listen, if you read the paper, for example, um, our stories or features or, you know, any sort of, even entertainment, does it represent your interest as a South African youth of Indian origin? And how do you think that needs to change? And let's ask, um, you know, Rachel, you've spent a great deal of time and we've spent a great deal of time researching um young people and their dynamics, and we do it, you know, on an ongoing basis. You know, what do you think then? I mean, when it comes to that, um, there is the sense that young people say, well, hey, what is representing me? I don't think this is representing me. Um, You know, a... A Sari Queen contest does not represent me, but a Sari is part of your heritage. So how do you straddle that too, you know?
0: No, absolutely true. I think, uh, you know... (laughs) For me, the best word we can use to describe this is fluid. The definition of who a young person of Indian origin in South Africa is, is very fluid. I mean, like you said, as much as we may love the sari or the dhoti, it's not common wear. Um, You wouldn't find us wearing that and going to campus or to school. And even in our... South African society, um, wearing some traditional religious, cultural clothing or artifacts is considered wrong. Wrong. No other word but wrong. No, you cannot wear these things. Yet it is typical, traditional, cultural.
1: Mm. Yeah. So definitely fluid is a good word there. Young people, I'd like to hear your say and even parents do. I mean, you could talk to me about, you know, the challenge. Um, that you have in terms of, you know, fitting your child in the way that you raise your child uh, within the context. At one point, you've got your particular values that you want to imbibe into your child, which is, you know, a heritage, and it comes from, uh, you know, an, an ancient lineage. But, um, you know, you have a young person growing up in a different world, in a rainbow nation that is mixed with so much of things, and how challenging then is it for you as a parent to talk about that? Okay, so that's what I want to start off with. But also, we're going to be looking at employment. And, you know, I came across a very interesting concept this week um, about the state and the nature of um, youth And I can't say youth employment, I'm going to say youth unemployment because that is a far more staggering figure. So we're also going to be from about 12.30 talking about that. And you can then talk to me about your concerns with regard to the employment crisis afflicting South African youth. But I just wanted to touch up now on this issue of where do South African young people find themselves uh, from a social perspective? Let's go to chapter two. I wonder what your thoughts are. Hello there.
3: To you and the listeners, my firm and strong advice to all South Africans, if it's in your capacity to leave this country, if you can afford leaving this country, make your move now before it's too late. There's nothing left of South Africa. It's on a downhill trend. If you can find your way out, find your way out and seek a better life for you and your children. Thank you
1: chapter two okay no optimism at all there from chapter two um okay interesting so yeah thank you for that and keep it coming through um yeah so keep your keep your messages coming through today on the program um i'd like to know your thoughts with regard to um you know where we find young people of south africa Firstly, their space, and then from there we can talk about the economic aspect of it. Nelisha says, with our new generation, it's hard to tell them anything regarding their dress code, and I um, many should behave. Here it comes down to parents to guide them on the do's and don'ts. I, um, in my time, my parents used to tell us, um, you know what we can use and, and how to behave. Um, yeah. So there's Nisha saying that, you know, young people have a mind of their own. Okay. Salim, Adam, your thoughts today?
3: I, Teresh, the youths are looking for a future. They're looking for opportunities. They want to see hope. What is happening is the Indian youths are judged by the colour. When they want to go to university, acceptance is rejected because of the colour of the skin. When they go for a job, then the BE quota is being used. When they want to go for businesses, then they use the BE tender quota again. At the moment, the youths are saying, we have had enough. There's so little opportunities for the youths. That that is one of the reasons why the youth unemployment is so high. They need to change. the change the status of the economy, change it around so the youth can get hope and see opportunities in this country.
1: Salim is, of course, interested in there about um, talking about um, the economic situation over TS20, who says the post-match interview is important for supporters to understand and listen to their heroes. Also, these interviews are not destructive uh, from the interview's point. They go through this as training. Yeah, but Tonti, I think what she's saying is is that, you know, when I have to talk about my match, it has an impact on my performance, it has an impact on my mental health. And I think when somebody, her point has been that when somebody says, listen, this is challenging for me, it should be respected. I mean, listen, a lot of us look forward to those post-match interviews because we want to know what the thought process of um, the game was. I mean, you know, I just... There are some times where I actually rather watch the post-match interview than actually watch the match. Because it gives me a sense as to what was the, the sort of clinical tactic that was used to you know, score goals or to 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 get points. Um, but, you know, when a person says, hey, listen, this is going to impact me and it's going to impact my match tomorrow. So I don't want to talk. Do we respect that or do we actually say, hey, no, but you owe it to us? Uh, but yeah, Naomi Saka really opened up kind of worms with regard to that. And I think there's going to be a lot more um, opinions going to be uh, from sports players about whether or not they want to do post-match interviews. Um, because I'm mean, think about it, right? I mean, you lost a match or you had a bad day at the office, uh, a crucial match, and... Imagine somebody says, yeah, but you played horribly today or, um, you know, you're sinking down the rankings or you weren't able to find the back of the net last tournament. You were the top goal scorer. And now you're like lagging three points behind uh, somebody else. And, Imagine that impact. Imagine that um, you know thought it has on somebody's mind, knowing that, oh, my gosh, I'm actually underperforming. And what kind of stress goes to that? Rachel, you're, you were saying something about that.
0: Yeah, the thing is, here we are speaking as adults and Naomi is a youth, a young person. There's so much of pressure in just being a normal youth of today. She has the added pressure of being an international tennis phenomena Um and she's said that she's had mental issues. Mm, she's years old. She needs to deal with them. And why are we, as um, as human beings, not taking notice, not taking heed of the fact that here's a young person under a lot of pressure who's saying, "Give me my space."
1: Yeah, you know, and I think when I started off the conversation and I asked you, you know, are young people feeling confident and safe enough to come out into these? spaces to put themselves? Do they feel that the global narratives represent what they're feeling and what they're thinking, right? An example of that would be Boris Becker, such a tennis icon, right? Legend of the game. And he said that Naomi Osaka's career is in danger by her uh, refusing to give post-match interviews. Now, that's one way of looking at it. Do young people think that, you know, what would young people think about the opinion of a legend like Boris Becker, would they say that he is not understanding what young people go through?
0: I think when Boris Becker was that star in the eighties, social media wasn't the way it is now. And social media can be devastating to any person. Boris played tennis and he was brutal on the courts, especially with his uh, temperament. And I loved him when he played there. You know, he was one of my icons. But in this day and age, if Boris Becker and John McEnroe had to throw those racks and scream the way they did, we'd be brutal to them on on Twitter. Imagine
1: those memes. That's it. That's it. That's what I was going to say to you now, because I don't know how much in those days were there a culture of trolling. Because, you know, if if Naomi were to say, um, I just wasn't feeling myself. Imagine the level of comments you'd get about it. You know, and that's um, going to impact somebody. Yes,
0: definitely. This is what
1: I mean then about, you know, this developing nature of young people. Do they have a conducive environment to express themselves? Um, Yeah, that was my my, my thinking behind that first interview that I did. You know, are we understanding where young people are coming from and providing um, adequate opportunities and comfortable spaces for them to articulate and communicate themselves? Um, Here's a message here. Hello there.
4: All right, affirmative action and BEE is well-intentioned but misguided, totally misguided. The other point I wish to make uh, is that there is a misconception that all Indians are affluent. But if we go to uh, uh, the Phoenix areas and uh, Chatsworth areas, uh, we, it paints a different, completely different picture. And uh, Indians came here as indentured slave labour. Uh, to the uh, colonialists uh, of the time, and uh, there should be class action against the British government for the abuses and atrocities committed against Indians uh, of uh, the slave labour trade. The other point I wish to make is that uh, why go overseas when we can tackle this uh, issue of uh, affirmative action and BE. Uh, whilst uh, in the country, uh, we must not run away from uh, the facts. The facts need to be addressed. Thanks, Frank Marzberg. Thanks
1: so much for that. Uh, Zakira from Johannesburg says, I feel for the youth um, regarding their identity. We too had the identity crisis in our teens. No, we don't throw the Sariyo, uh, Salwar Kameez out the back door. Like many minority youth, we've had to adapt. So, yeah, that's Zakira putting it quite well in a nutshell. Um, okay, we're going to come back to this particular message. It's about employment. Um, yeah, so those are the sentiments coming through, I think. Um, yeah, okay, so we're just going to leave that there. Um, just a few little bit more points um, with regard um, to our conversation. And then we are also now going to talk about the economic situation, about um, where South African youth find themselves currently. I mean, it's not a good picture for them, Um, and definitely it is something that, you know, one needs to tackle, one needs to actually um, take cognizance of, because, um, you know, the 2020 fourth quarter labor force survey, which from Stats StatsSA that comes from, and what they're saying is that 8.6 million young people aged between 15 and 34 are not in education and not in employment. 8.6 million of South African youth are either not educating themselves or not earning a living. Where are they? What on earth are they doing? And um, I mean, you know, we foresaw this a couple of years ago, and I remember, um, I should rehash that um, particular uh, interview that I did. Um, do you remember it, Rachel? We had gone, I think it was to Verulam, and we tracked down a group of, you know, um, young people with no education, no work, and we asked them, well, what are you doing?
0: Yes, I a remember. A lot of them were,
1: you know, drug users. A lot of them were at points just, you know, awaiting trial. A lot of them were just literally sitting outside the tug shop, you know, no judgment, but this no. is you know when you think when you ask that question where are the young people, uh, this is what we've done. So yeah, we're going to be talking about that uh, with our um, you know um, economic experts in a short while. So you think about that. But here's an interesting point on the topic that I want to take further, and I'm going to do so with my guest but you can wrap your head around it. I spoke to an entrepreneurship expert um, while researching the topic today, and um, he said to me, and I found this so powerful, he said that young people are being educated for jobs that don't exist. Think about that. Young people in a tertiary level right now, for, you know, for those that actually are you know fortunate enough to be there, are being educated to enter a job market where jobs do not exist. So what are they going to do then? You know, if on one hand you get those 8.6 million South Africans who are not even educating or working, then you have a small fraction who are, but they also can't find jobs because when they come into the job market, there are no jobs for them. What on earth is it meaning for the future? And this is where the whole issue of entrepreneurship has come about, Um, you know, starting your own business, doing your own thing. Um, an interesting conversation I had about it was, so, uh, so a master's graduate in commerce who can't find a job should not feel bad about making cupcakes and selling cupcakes from his house. Um, interesting point, realistic point in 2021. So we're going to be talking about all of that now when we come back we focus on economics of the situation. You can um, wrap your head around that and we'll take that conversation forward.
0: When they walk
2: onto the pitch, you see eagerness to triumph. When the referee blows for kickoff,
5: you know there's thrilling action coming your way. The goals, the drama, the flame, the passion, the is the Hollywood
2: Beds Super League. When the clock hits towards the 90th minute, the coaches start shouting, Switch on! And you know it's not over until the very final whistle. The Hollywood Beds Super League. Live every weekend on the SABC Sport Channel on OpenView Channel 124 at 3 p.m. Also on SABC One. Brought to you by
1: SABC Sport.
5: of viewers across from Zanzi tune into Afternoon Express to enhance their skills in the kitchen through our food explorations. And they can do so because they pay their TV licenses for less than 74 cents a day or 265 Rand for the entire year. You can enjoy your culinary masterclasses on Tuesdays and Thursdays at 5.30 p.m. right here on S3. For super fast, secure and convenient payment from any device, go to www.tvlic.co.za and click the fast pay button for payment under three minutes. Make a difference to your cooking on afternoon express and TV licences. Pay yours.
1: So what statistics South Africa tells us is that the number of discouraged job seekers jumped by two hundred and one thousand, or nearly seven percent. What this means is people who are dis, you know discouraged. From actually entering the job market, now these latest figures in show the increase in the official unemployment rate to 32.6% in the first quarter. That's 2021 from 32.5% in the last quarter of last year. Some analysts said they, you know, expected it to be worse, but um, you know, it's an increase, right? And the expanded definition of unemployment, including discouraged job seekers, has increased to. Um, 43.2 in the first, first quarter. So, um, f- you know, frightening statistics nonetheless. And, um, you know, what does it mean then for young people? Because here we are glorifying young people and asking where is their space within the broader society and the global society, are their voices heard? Um, but, you know, and, and, and forgive me if I sound harsh here, but what is the strength of that voice if young people right now are unable to make ends meet so that's really a concern and i'm very fortunate now to be joined on the line by economic justice program manager at the alternative information and development center or the aidc dominic brown dominic good afternoon to you thanks for your time
6: good afternoon then. It's just nice. thank you
1: yeah, Dominic, just I think to hear you, uh, I wonder if you are using headphones, if you are, maybe uh, if you could just use your headset, uh, that would work out better for us. Uh, are you able to hear me clearly? I can hear
6: you, can you hear me now? Yeah,
1: much better now, you're much louder now, thanks for that. So yeah, I mean, Youth Month, you know, and um, you know, I want to look at it from from an employment perspective, an economic perspective, not much to celebrate then, hey, if you think about it.
6: Absolutely. and uh first of I think there's a couple of things to say about the official unemployment statistics. The first thing is that um more than 1.3 million people left employment have lost their jobs somehow uh, over the past year. So uh that's a large number of jobs that were lost. Um and of course, we know um, there hasn't been many jobs created. So in total now, there's 14.9 million people employed and officially 11.4 million unemployed, according to the expanded definition uh, from Statue. So and that number could actually be larger if you consider that there's um, a large number of um, Homemakers and discouraged workers in the um, not economically active um, statistics. So it could easily be um, a million or so more people in the um, official unemployed um, statistics. And so That leads me to my second point, and that is that the narrow definition of unemployment in general is quite misleading because it doesn't include discouraged workers and many people who would accept a job. So it's misleading, first of all, because uh, that 0.1% increase doesn't show that more than 1.4 million or more than 1.3 million people have lost their jobs. And secondly, because it doesn't um, include discouraged workers, it seems much lower than what the reality is. And so the um, expanded definition of unemployment is not perfect. Um, It's a much truer deflection, a much more accurate deflection of the unemployment crisis um, that we have. And then lastly um, on this is that I think we are well aware that the pandemic has devastated the job market. And yeah. um, this has um, the impacted on poorer households. Mm. But I think in mm. the African context, um, we also know that we had an unemployment crisis long before the pandemic. And the pandemic has just exacerbated some of the existing problems.
1: Yeah. You know, Dominic, I want to ask yeah. about that. And, you know, a, yeah. as basic as you can, because I know we often go through a lot of um, statistics and jargon with regard um, to understanding the cause and the specifications of unemployment in the country. But, I mean, you say that unemployment, and that crisis, existed before the pandemic. It existed far before then even. What caused it?
6: So... I think in the first instance, many people recognized that we, first of all, inherited a massive unemployment problem following um, apartheid, right? Um, which excluded the majority of black people from the job market and from the economy. Um, so, yes, that was a problem. And then in 1994, uh, with a new or with a democratically elected government, we had an opportunity to um, embark on a process of redistribution and economic policy that redistributes wealth and create jobs um, in the process. That quickly shifted. um, And in 1996, we adopted GEAR, which stands for Growth, Employment and Redistribution but actually was anything but that. And basically the policy was now that through growth we'll be able to get um, jobs and redistribution instead of through redistribution and jobs we'll yeah. get growth, okay? And basically this entailed a couple of economic policy choices. One, one major one, and so basically maybe to first go back a bit, what I'm saying is that in spite of inheriting a massive problem of unemployment, post 1994, the economic policies that we adopted made the situation worse. And I'm wanting to paint a picture of what these policies were uh, now. And one example uh, re- uh, um, relates to um, overarchingly the process of globalization. And in the particular, in this instance, the issue of um, deregulating our trade markets or integrating more closely into the global uh economy through trade okay yeah yeah and one of the major impacts of this was that our manufacturing industry uh, which was able which wasn 't able to compete with glo- with the global economy, was quickly wiped out. And with that, we lost huge amounts of jobs, thousands of jobs. Yeah,
1: yeah. I from just wanted, to, I just 15. wanted to get a sense of it, Dominic. In a way, it started from, and um, you know, I mean, and I don't know at home if you're going to agree with me on the way I'm directing this, but I feel like I actually don't want to spend more time as to, you know, what has been the crisis, what is the situation. I think we know it, right? Let's talk about solutions then, Dominic, because I came across something particularly interesting um, this week about the you know, nature of the job market slash education system where experts are saying that South Africans are being educated for jobs that don't exist. How frightening is that reality?
6: For me, what's more frightening actually is that we are not creating sufficient amount of jobs at all, never mind jobs. So that's the problem. It's not... So that's why we have unemployed graduates and that's why we have a massive amount of unemployed structurally. And the point I was trying to make, Toresh, is that a lot of this... You can't tinker at the margins with entrepreneurship and um, small-medium enterprises when the problem is so big. You need major economic uh, policy interventions and you need to correct the problematic policy measures that created or exacerbated these problems. So that's number one. So that's why I was trying to show you, for instance, Yo. the problems with the trade policy. The second thing I would say is that there is ways in which we can create jobs. A, the current way in which the Treasury and government is dealing with the economic policies The COVID crisis is actually going to exacerbate the problem of unemployment. Why? Because they're intending on making large cuts to social spending, as well as large cuts to the public sector wage bill. So this will lead to a contraction in the economy, lead to less productivity, less demand for goods and services. And so you will see public sector jobs being lost as well as private sector jobs are uh, being lost in the current period. So it's the wrong way to go about it. Alternatively, what we should see is, as I say, not tinkering at the margins, but we need to address unemployment in a structural way, as well as the problem of climate change. And so what we are suggesting is that government invests in, yeah. Yeah. in a re strategy that centers the creation of jobs through uh, the production of a publicly owned renewable energy uh, development program. Two, through the creation of a mass housing, public housing program. Three, through the fixing of schools and improvement of schools, healthcare, and um, the public services in general, which relates to three, the improvement of the public transport system. When you invest in these things, at the same time, you improve people's lives and you create a number of jobs in the process. So then and then I think in addition to all of this is that we need an introduction uh, of a permanent basic income grant, given the scale of inequality and unemployment, particularly amongst youth. And then, of course, the question Tarishi is, "So where is the money going to come from to pay for all of this?"
1: Because that's been and the major sticking point for government, isn't it? I mean, if you look at you know agencies like the National Youth Development Agency, for example, I mean, you know, big infrastructure there, but is it actually you know achieving and anything actually, and doing it? So you got a question then.
6: The national, the National Youth Development Agency is actually not big infrastructure, and secondly especially not in terms of the amount of investment that's going into it. And secondly, what I think we are seeing is a manufactured fiscal crisis, a manufactured economic problem to push through the very problematic economic uh, policies that we're seeing. And the whole manufactured uh, economic problem is on the basis that we don't have money. And two, that the state is run like a household so first of all, let's ask the question about the household. The state can raise revenue through taxes which a household can't do. But of course, we're in a situation now where the possibilities of raising revenue from taxes has uh, been reduced, uh, even, even though SARS is doing relatively good in keeping us afloat. That brings me to the second question about, do we have no money? And here there's been lots of factual or what I would call empirical evidence that would show that there's large levels of resources, pools of finance that extend beyond the need to uh, look at income taxes, including a wealth tax, uh, which could raise large levels of resources, including the need to stop corporations from shifting profits out of the country, each year, again, to raise large, uh, large levels of revenue. Even if government stops outsourcing procurement, it currently loses 30 to 40% of its procurement budget due to private sector fraud and corruption and inflated prices. This could in itself raise in addition to 200 billion rand each year. And then there's a massive pool of money in the form of the government employees' pension fund which should be redirected from the investment into the financial economy, the JSE, to investment in the real economy, into production, uh, and the kind of uh, examples I was mentioning, housing, transport, health, education, etc which would in itself uh, create, um, once again, uh, uh, stable returns of investment for the government employees pension fund to Secure pensions in the long run, much less volatile than the current investments in the giant stock exchange yeah yeah so there's, so, so there's massive pools of right, resources right. available yeah. and and and, and, there's, and there's definite alternative policy measures that is required to create a large levels of jobs. The question is uh, coming back to the kind of economic policies and how you justify advancing the current policies, which everyone knows, including Treasury, is harmful for the majority of people in this country.
1: Yeah, I think, though, Dominic, we'll have to leave it there with you. I think that is all the time we had in terms of, you know, sifting through all the research and data you've collated on the issue. We'll have to leave it there. But, you know, I think it's fascinating to listen to the appraisal that you give it and, of course, the suggestions you provide Um, definitely we will take that conversation forward. And I think um, and subsequently in in days to come as Youth Month continues. So, yeah, that was Economic Justice Programme Manager from um, the Alternative Information Development Centre, Dominic Brown talking to us today on the program about, uh, you know, the the sort of economic situation that young people find themselves specifically when looking at um, the employment sector. So we are going to go to some of your voice notes now, your messages, and uh, let's hear what you've got to say. Hello there.
7: Good afternoon to the Lotus FM team. Uh, This is a very good but a rare topic. Unemployment rate is one of the worst statistics in South Africa. And if we look at it, many of the people that are highly qualified are not employed. But those that know little to a least are being employed. And this is being unfair to those that have put in time and effort towards financial studies and uh, going further. In In this regard, I say it's very, very unfair.
1: Yeah, lamenting the, the state of, um, you know, even the way employment is is, is um, what little exists, the way it is given. Let's go to Mr. Ian Govinda.
4: Good afternoon, Taresh. We are living in a rainbow nation and the youth of today are exposed to different cultures. Most of the Indian youth of today have forgotten their roots and have been westernized. They don't even understand or speak the language of their forebears. The youth are fearful of their future because they are overlooked when they apply for a job. They are depressed and seek solace in drugs and alcohol. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Govinder.
1: Um I'm going to go to some text messages now. And Raymond Chetty says in 1975, I was not allowed to go to the same printing college as so I was sent to Cape Town for three years. So of course, uh, you know, I mean, looking back at the, the, the progression of education, Anonymous says, my dad worked in a shoe factory. In In this factory, workers' children became doctors, lawyers, and lots of us had uh, food on the table. Now, with the import of shoes from other countries, shoe factories closed down and younger people are begging. So again, you know, very much on the likes of what Dominic was talking about, you know, this sort of economic reform and um, procedures in place that is hindering creation and sustainability of jobs. Mana says many of the youth in this generation do make their own choices. Some do seek guidance from their parents and spirituality. Also, it should be an important part of their lives. They should value their culture and be guided by it. Um, Stephanus from Pretoria says I'm a tertiary educator at a well-known university students don't want to study for a career they want a degree and when we try to transfer skills to them um, to make them job ready they complain that we are gatekeepers instead of educators now that the curriculum has been changed to get more students to pass they don't get employed because they lack skills now that is a powerful comment coming through Stephanus, um about you know people just wanting to get what a piece of paper and not necessarily the skills. Uh challenging way to look at it. Anonymous says I think our unemployment rate will be lower if we stop um if we start rather employing more South Africans to do South African jobs. Yeah. Um and I think we are going to be you know going through here's a message from Zahir and we you know we started up talking about culture and and and, and conversations I think I feel that Zahir represents a conversation here about classism and about, um, you know, where people fit in socially, that young people would be interested in discussing or taking further. And he says, you know, about how people look at us, uh, Indian South Africans, I had a taxi association and when I go to meet people, their first expectation of me is I must have lots of gold in my mouth and wear lots of gold. Um, and when I say I'm from Phoenix, more especially, um, with our Indian origin people who live outside of Phoenix, they assume that I'm supposed to talk in a certain way or be a sort of A-head um, with cheap values. Now, this shocked me um, in in a particular area in Durban, you know, um, and, and he goes on to to explain this particular area. Um yeah. So this is so basically what he's saying is, you know, why are people bringing down Indian-origin people from Phoenix and Chatsworth um, that we, you know, come from poor backgrounds, poor houses, and um, and this is painful when 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 um, Zahir says this, and I think this is what young people possibly want to talk about. Um, you know, some people won't even allow their children to marry people from Phoenix, and this is of course. Or chats with and this is of course from Zahir Danbar, who is putting onto the table, he says, um, a very interesting conversation about um, you know what young people I think uh, should be talking about. I think broader society as well.
7: Let's go to Selwyn. Hello. Good evening, good afternoon, Taresh and the listeners. I think the last speaker was very, very apt and very exact about what she said. I agree with her. The fiscal is actually killing the the goose that's laying the golden eggs. Those middle-class entrepreneurs and small entrepreneurs, particularly in certain uh, fiscal factors, for instance, the financial sector, the medical sector, uh, the industry regarding regulatory bodies. There's more regulations, there's more fees, the Council for Medical Schemes. And when you train youngsters who don't have skills, there's regulatory bodies that intervened once again. Have you got them for UIF? Have you done this? Yet in China, there's no such things. Everyone is learning. Everyone is surviving. So my argument is those entrepreneurs who are successful are not being conceded like myself. When we help youngsters, the fiscal must not come in and say you have to have so many hours of working. They have to have this and that. We worked hard over the years, and there are youngsters who are still keen to learn. Right now, I'm training young undergraduates, and they're quite happy to learn. And the fiscal comes in. You've got to have regulations. Where are they from? Are they going to divulge information? Are they going to do this? The Popey Act. So the fiscal needs to get a bit more mediocre and assist the middle class entrepreneurs. Thanks, Taresh. Thank you so much. Bye. Thanks, Elvin. And of course, you know, they're talking about imparting of skills. Um,
1: Very important there. Okay, so I think we said we had a mixed bag today and we were talking about Naomi Osaka, of course, the um, tennis player who basically uh, caused a lot of stir by saying that she doesn't want to uh, give post-match... Reacts in in conversations, and I spoke to Dr. Raj Govinda about this while I was researching it from a you know from a from a um, sociology point of view. Dr. Raj Govinda, thanks so much for your time. I know we were a bit delayed on that interview, but um, you, you know you, you said, so, soci- sociologically speaking, that um, Naomi Osaka made a very strong point.
5: Yes. A very, very strong point, and I think it is very, very important for the world to know that mental health is a serious issue. Now, Naomi. Uh, Osaka is a tennis player. She's a very good and excellent number one ranked tennis player. That is a forte, not speaking, not public speaking. So the French Tennis Association should be reprimanded for being so insensitive and inhuman and immoral towards this young girl, where all she, all she told him is that she cannot partake in the uh, post-match uh, press conference. Now, that is nothing to do with playing tennis. She could play tennis, but she cannot speak. She's not a public speaker. Right. She's but suffering from serious I want mal-
1: to ask you then, isn't that part of the job then, isn't it? And specifically when you're world number one, I mean, there's a lot that goes into the game that I think the association needs to disseminate and even the fans need to have some sort of buy-in in. So surely it's a requirement of your job to talk about you know, the match after the match.
5: No, but then if you're not a public speaker and she has a seat serious problem speaking in public uh, and that is not a forte or she told him that she doesn't want to partake in a, because she has serious issues about it. Now, th- they should accommodate a need, not finer. Now, obviously, they've done more harm to this young girl because now, uh, uh, going forward, is going to have serious mental because mental health is a serious problem. And, and, and going yeah. forward, she's yeah. going to have so much of problem. So I think the French Tennis Association needs to be reprimanded and I think I would say and, and, and be bold to say the other tennis players should boycott the French Open. You know, Dr. Gandhi, uh,
1: because the point uh, that, that one needs to look at is if Naomi Osaka said, wait a second, I have a sore throat, I've got laryngitis and I can't speak, then she would be exempt from a press conference, right? But no, when that is a medical right, condition. But when she says she's got a mental health issue, that is overlooked. So my point is, why is mental health not taken as seriously as a physical health?
5: That is why I'm saying yeah. mental yeah. health is more serious than physical health. It is. It works on your emotions. It's traumatic. There's lots of successful people have mental health issues, and and people are not giving cognizance to how important the issue is. And then uh, and now the, the French uh, tennis association has and, and made themselves vulnerable to to understanding the needs of uh, you know mental health needs of people. Uh, I think more uh, you know. Uh, uh, they should be reprimanded, in fact. They should be reprimanded yeah, yeah. by the world, uh, you know, uh, sporting bodies. And I would say, and I'm point blank saying, that other tennis players in support of Nahomi, for what uh, she has uh, underwent, they should boycott this French open.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Dr. Raj, Governor, we'll leave it there with you. Thank you for that. Dr. Raj a sociologist there, um, who was supposed to talk with us about it. So I'm sorry if I've not gone through all of your messages here. We went through a lot of research with regard to the unemployment crisis in the country. So we've had to leave it there. But we thank you for contributing. Um the broadcast came in your way courtesy of the team executive producer Salma Patel and Rachel Wadi will talk soon from Meeta hey, have an awesome day
2: news break. lotus fm powered by sabc news